Uh, so we are in the second week of our sermon series called When in Rome, where we're going through uh, the book of Romans. Uh, and so if you were here last week uh, or watched online last week, as I watched online last week, uh, Ben Tool kicked off the sermon series for us um, and kind of showed us, hey, this is where we're going. And this is one of those series that we do a few times a year, which are kind of an all-in type of sermon series. Uh, so last week we gave out these uh, Romans devotional guides that will kind of help you to read through uh, every word in the book of Romans uh, over the next, I think, 11 weeks or so. Uh, you can download that if you're watching online. You can grab it out in the lobby if you're here in person. Um, and then uh, uh, every Monday through Friday morning from 8 to about 8.10 or 8.15, we have a devotional going through the book of Romans if you want to dig in that way. If you can't be online during that time, you can check it out later uh, during the day. But just want to encourage you that this would be an all-in kind of sermon series. So much so that I would say if you missed last week, listen to it. Uh, but that you would commit yourself to listening to every sermon in the course of this series. So, uh, and then the other thing that we're doing is just for this series, uh, we'll kind of see how it goes, is again, if you're watching uh, online live, is after the service, there's going to be a Zoom room that opens up that you can have a dialogue and a discussion about what the sermon was about. So, uh, that is where we're going today. If you want to open to Romans chapter 1, uh, we're going to start there and... Um, I'm going to pray, and if you pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, um, I know that what we're talking about is heavy and hard. And, um, and so this morning especially, I ask that you would speak through me, Lord. That the words that I say would be the words that you want me to say, and the words I don't say would be the words that you don't want me to say. Um, and as I speak... Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak louder than my words uh, this morning. God, help us to just take a good, honest look in the mirror at who we are uh, and who we're not. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to uh, February 16th, 2015. And it was the Monday following President's Day weekend, that weekend. And uh, my wife, Stacy. Uh, and my daughter Emily, who was a senior in high school that year, uh, they were in New York City doing shows, visiting friends, that kind of thing. I was back home in Charleston. It was kind of a snowy weekend. I remember a lot of it pretty vividly. And um, leading up to that time, my son Riley, who was a sophomore in high school, um, had been kind of sick off and on. It was one of those things where he woke up, he's like, Dad, I'm not feeling well. I don't want to go to school. I'm like, that's fine. You know, and he'd be off school for a couple of days, and he'd say, hey, I'm feeling well, and then he'd go to school for a couple of days or a half a day, and then he'd come home with dad, I'm just, I'm just feeling drained, I'm feeling sick, I'm not feeling very good. And, um, and he was having really bad sleep patterns and kind of staying up too late and just, you know, not taking care of his body. He was drinking, like, diet, uh, Dr. Pepper, like it was going out of style. Like, I'd leave in the morning, come back in the evening, and he had drunk an entire Dr. Pepper trying to quench his thirst. And there was just something that wasn't quite right. I figured he had strep throat or something. So we're like, okay, let's take you to the doctor. So we went on that Monday morning. And, um, and our friend, Rob Johnson, Dr. Rob, we call him, he you know, did the throat swab and took all you know, blood stuff and all that kind of stuff. And he you know, asked Rob some questions. And then he said, when I find out what's going on, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll let you know. But he didn't see anything like kind of initially there. And so then um, he calls us that evening and it's probably, I don't know, five, six, seven o'clock, something like that at night. 
uh, and he calls and he, and he says this. Uh, he says, Riley's blood sugar is 750. And you're supposed to have a blood sugar level of 100. And he said, it's a clear sign that Riley has type 1 diabetes. And that was hard for us to hear. I mean, his pancreas doesn't work right. It doesn't break down sugars the way that everybody else's does. Um, and it was hard at that time to hear because it was probably was and still to this point is probably the worst news or the hardest news that our family received. And, and we, you know, certainly other things are going to happen in life that may surpass that. Um, but that was six and a half years ago. And ever since then, Riley's been checking his blood, level, blood sugar level and giving himself insulin shots. And as I think back um, to that night, it was really hard news that we received that night from Rob on the phone. And then we went, I took him to the emergency room, and he spent the next two days in the hospital, and we learned more about diabetes than we learned ever, ever before that, and trying to figure out what does it look like to have that. Um, and so that news was incredibly hard news for us and our family to receive. Um, but at the same time, that was really good news. Because now we understood what the problem was with Riley's body and why he'd been sick kind of on and off in this weird sickness for the last two or three weeks. But we also knew and understood, okay, this is the diagnosis. Now we know how to move forward with that. And as I think about Rob, our doctor, calling us, I'm so glad that he did. And this is a little silly to think about. But like, imagine if Rob was like, you know what? I don't want to make this phone call um, because it might sort of offend the Sands to say that their son has diabetes. Or, you know, I don't really want to make this phone call um, because it's just, it's hard news and, and you know, it's snowing out. Nobody wants to get bad news. Or, you know, I, I don't really want to give him this news because, like, this, this poor high school kid is going to be devastated and he's going to have to give himself shots for the rest of his life. And I don't know that I want to give that bad news to him. So I'll just not call. Like, that would be obviously ridiculous for him to do that. Because the fact is, we know just with our bodies, if there's a problem in our bodies, we want to know. We need to know so we can figure out where do we go from there. And this morning, we're going to talk about a spiritual problem. That all of us have a spiritual problem. And we're going to see that spiritual problem really clearly this morning. Because as we go through the book of Romans, Paul spends about two and a half chapters on this one single problem, this one spiritual problem that all of us have. And so we're going to spend two and a half chapters talking about that this morning. So this is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And it says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, we're going to talk this morning, it's in your outline, it's on the title, we're going to talk about the wrath of God. And nobody likes necessarily to talk about the wrath of God, right? It's like, I want to hear about the love of God and the compassion of God and how God helps. But for two and a half chapters, Paul talks about the wrath of God. And so we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the wrath of God. 
I lived in Morgantown for uh, six and a half years. I was on Young Life staff there and then uh, church staff at Chestnut Ridge for a couple years as well. And uh, if, for those of you who lived in Morgantown or are familiar with WVU, but there's a, a space out front of the mountain layer which is called the Free Speech Zone. And they invite anybody from anywhere, student or not, to come and kind of share their beliefs, bizarre, however they might be. And so I can remember one time I was in Morgantown, I came out of the mountain layer, and there was a guy standing on the um, mountain layer with a big sign, not like just a cardboard sign, but like a big bedsheet sign that he was standing next to. And it had just a couple words. It said, all that matters is you're going to hell, right? Just stand outside. All that matters is you're going to hell. And I look at that sign, I'm like, buddy, you got to change that message a little bit somehow. I mean, all that matters is you're going to hell. So for the next 20 minutes, it's going to feel like you're looking at that sign. And all I'm saying is, all that matters is you're going to hell, right? And it's going to feel a little bit weird and a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but I take it back to that phone call that Rob made to us. And, and all that mattered in that moment is that Riley had type 1 diabetes, didn't matter that he was a good soccer player or a good student or a good son or he could run fast or he, it, in that moment, that was what mattered. And so in this moment, as Paul is talking, all that matters is that we are deserving of the wrath of God. And so what's going to happen over these two and a half chapters is Paul is going to talk about four different groups that are deserving of God's wrath. And we're going to kind of listen along and understand who he's talking to. And, and I think as we find out, we're going to go, gosh, at least one of these, or maybe more, he's probably talking to us. So, who deserves the wrath of God? From verse 18, it's the rejectors. Those who reject God are deserving of God's wrath. Those who reject his existence, those who reject his ways, those who reject his rule in their lives, and especially those who reject the truth of God are deserving of God's wrath. So I read verse 18 to you. I'm going to continue in verse 19. It says this. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because, and you're talking about the rejectors, plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so he's talking about the people who have rejected God. He said, and they don't have an excuse. They may not have heard about God specifically or Yahweh of the Old Testament, but he says they are without excuse because people could look at the world around them and see that there is a creation around them. And because of that, deduce or understand that something had to create what was around them, that there is a creator. And so people are without an excuse. If you can see that there's a creation, you know that something created it. Then he goes on, he says this. For although they, this is those that reject God, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he talks about the people who reject God. They kind of have two problems or two issues. The first is that they don't honor God. They don't honor God in what they say, in what they think, in how they act, in the goals that they set, in how they treat people. They don't honor God in any of that. And the second 
is there's the other half is they don't give thanks to God. You know, and when we talk about being thankful, I think most of us think that we're thankful. Like I say, you know, grace at dinner. I thank God for the food I'm about to eat. You know, when I pass a cop going 75 miles an hour, I thank God I didn't get pulled over. You know, I thank God that, you know, for my family and my health. And, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as thankful. But this is saying that do we thank God in everything that life exists around us? And then in verse 25, Paul explains why it is that people reject God, why they are rejecters. And it says this, verse 25. It says, because they, again, people who have rejected God, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So it says they did two things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped the created instead of the creator. As we look at that, I think so much of why people reject God or reject doing what God wants is because we buy into a lie. You know, we buy into the lie, we believe the lie that if I avoid the conflict, the problem will just go away. We believe the lie that I really need to make sure that I'm pleasing people and that people are happy with me. We believe the lie that sex before marriage is going to enhance the relationship. We believe the, God, the lie that Satan puts in our head that God made me and it was a mistake the way that he made me. Or we believe the lie that God has abandoned us. We believe these other lies and we replace the truth of God with a lie. You know, the other thing he says says, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We serve the creature rather than creator. What's the creature that we serve instead of the creator? It's ourselves. That we put ourselves through if we serve ourselves instead of serving God. And then, and isn't this fun? And then over the next seven verses, Paul lists 23 different sins. Everything from homosexual sex to pride to gossip to deceitfulness to disobeying your parents. And he goes through that list, and you can look at that list on your own. I'm going through the, the reading plan that I hope that you guys are going through as well. And this, these verses, these 23 sins, came up on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And, and I, what I did, and as I looked at all of these sins, and I said, do I commit these? And some I'm like, no, nah, I don't really. And some are like, yeah, kind of. And others I'm like, nah, it's kind of prevalent in my life. I looked at these sins, but then I looked at this idea that the reason that we sin is that we believe a lie instead of a truth. And so I walked through all 23 of those sins, and I said, do I commit this? And if I do, what's the lie that I'm believing that causes me to commit this sin, that causes me to, to reject the truth that God gives us. As you look through that list, my guess is that you're going to find that you're guilty of one or more or perhaps the majority of those sins. And all those sins are things that people do who have rejected the truth of God. Paul addresses the second group deserving of God's wrath in verse 2. Okay, chapter 2, verse 2. By the way, does anybody need to go to the restroom right now? You're like, I really got to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to because you think I'm going to walk out on the wrath of God stuff, but 
If you need to, we understand. Just flush loudly. Okay. Verse 2, it says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Now, it's interesting. He's switched from they to you. They reject God. They do these sins. They have pride. They dishonor their parents. They, they, they. Right? And then he switches. He says, but you... And so now it's almost like he's talking to us. And the idea is that we're thinking about, well, those people do bad things, but we don't. And he says, but you know what you do do? Is you judge those people. So the second group deserving of God's wrath is the judges. Those who judge other people. Verse 5, it says this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So those who judge others are deserving of God's wrath. He asks the question, do you fit in this group? Because here's the thing is, we typically don't think of ourselves as judgmental, but almost all of us are. Because what we do is we use a different standard for other people than for ourselves. You know, you see somebody, you hear about somebody who just flies off the handle. They just go crazy, just nuts, yelling at somebody, or get angry, or speak tersely, or whatever it is. You're like, man, that's not very godly. But then we do the same thing, right? We speak harshly, we fly off the handle, we speak tersely. But yet what we do, we don't even think that we're judging because we give ourselves all kinds of exceptions. It's like, well, I, I did that because they treated me this way. I, I lashed out in anger because I was kind of having a tough day myself. And we give ourselves a whole lot of latitude that we don't give to other people. That's a symptom of showing that we do, in fact, judge. And those who judge deserve God's wrath. Here's the third group that deserves God's wrath. Verse 12. It says this. It says, For all who have sinned, without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, Paul is sometimes a little bit hard to understand, and he's going to get more complicated here because he's speaking to an audience that understands some of the language that he's using here. But he says, all who have sinned without the law. So that's those who are Gentiles, those who are not believers in, in Yahweh. So that'd be the rejectors, those that judge. Um, they're going to perish without the law. But he says... But all who have sinned under the law, so now he's speaking to Jewish people, you live under the law, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then he continues, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so it's almost like there's this glimmer of hope that's saying, okay, those who live by the law will not experience the wrath of God. Those who live righteously will not experience the wrath of God. Then we continue down to verse 25. It says, for circumcision, and so circumcision is how he refers to people who are Jewish, who follow the law. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what he's saying is, if you're a Jew... 
and you follow the law completely, then your Jewishness is actually helpful to help you avoid the wrath of God. You're not deserving the wrath of God if you fulfill and uphold the Jewish law absolutely, perfectly, without blemish. But the problem is, the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of laws, as is the New Testament, about commands. In the Old Testament alone, there's 613 laws. Some of those were positive laws in the sense of do this, offer this sacrifice, do this festival. And some of those were negative laws. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt, those types of things. So there were some that were positive, some that were negative commands. But it was impossible to keep all of those commands. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says, if you obey the law completely without flaw, well then yeah, you can state righteous. But if not, then you're deserving of wrath. Another uh, writer in the New Testament is James. And, uh, and Paul tends to be kind of theological and heady and sometimes hard to figure out. James is just like the practical dude, right? And so this is what he says. It's James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So if you fail on just one point of the law, you are deserving of wrath. So here's this category of people. Who is deserving of God's wrath? The religious. The religious. As we look at these categories, and we're going to look at one more, this is us. Like, we are the religious people. You may not think of yourself as religious, but in the terms of the kind of structure of the, of the world, like, you're religious. You are here in church. You're watching online. You are religious. You come and you say, I- I'm going to try and do what God wants me to do. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to pray. I'm, I'm going to confess my sins. You, think, you are a religious person. Christians tend to be religious people, even if we don't necessarily like that label. And as Paul's talking about, that's us. And so the question is, are we deserving of God's wrath? Well, if you can do everything in the Bible perfectly, then no, you're not deserving of God's wrath. But if you violate and break just one commandment, and most of us have probably broken a lot more, then yes, you are deserving, I am deserving of God's wrath. There's one more group that Paul addresses. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he's saying, whether you're Jewish or Greek, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, we could even say whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you, you know, have a church background or don't have a church background, everybody says all are under sin. All deserve God's wrath. Then he continues on in verse uh, verse 10. He says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No, not one does good. Not even one. Pretty clear. Who's righteous? No one. None, no, not one. Then in verse 20, to make it even more clear, it says, For by works of the law, 
So by our good works, by how we live our lives, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So who's deserving of God's wrath? The human race. In case you didn't fit in any of the three categories, now you do. Right? You're part of the human race, and so what that means is you are deserving of God's wrath. And I'm part of the human race, and I too am deserving of God's wrath. That's some pretty serious stuff. Why spend all this time on that one single point? All that matters is you're going to hell. All that matters is you're deserving of God's grace. See, here's the thing. is, And I usually would do this towards the front end of the message, but I want to do it at the end because here's the thing. is, We have so many misconceptions about how God's judgment and how God's wrath works. We have these misconceptions about how it works. Here's one misconception. Is that God uses the point system, right? Like a teacher would use the point system in class. You know, so you take a test, and you have to get, everybody in the class has to get 100. If you get 100, then that's great. But if you miss some, then you get an 85. But you can have some extra credit, right? You're in Spanish class, and so if you bring in a two-liter of Diet Coke for the fiesta, I'll give you 15 extra credit points, right? Like, that's the way that school works sometimes, or at least my kids' classes, it seems like. I'm like, you failed the test. Just fail the test. You can't bring in pop for the fiesta to make it up. Anyway, I digress. Um, but you see, what we think, and this is the misconception, is that's how God works. It's like, I sin, and so I, I deduct, I deduct, I deduct, I deduct, but... I did something good. I went to church. I gave some money. I prayed. I helped somebody. I helped somebody who didn't deserve to get my help. And so I'm trying to rack my points back up to get even. It's not the way it works. Here's another misconception. Is that God grades on a curve. Again, using the school analogy, it's like, okay, well, a certain number of people are going to pass this class, and a certain number of people are not going to pass this class. And, and so we're going to give the test, and if you don't do well, then we'll just take it, we'll move the you know, curve, and that way some people pass, and some people won't. And so it's basically a comparison thing. And we think the same thing, again, a misconception about how God judges us. Well, it's just, you know, it's kind of a compare. Like, are you good enough? Are you better than most? Or are you not? And, and that God grades on a curve. Again, a misconception, because we just talked about how does God grade, so to speak, that all of us are deserving of God's wrath. Here's a third misconception, that God uses what I call the modern t-ball method, right? Or the modern soccer method of little kids playing soccer. Is that everyone who plays gets a medal, and everyone who plays gets a trophy, right? And so the human race is kind of like that. As long as you're not like really bad... Everybody eventually gets to heaven. Everybody eventually avoids God's wrath. But that's not the truth. The truth is what we've talked about. That those who reject God deserve God's wrath. Those who judge others deserve God's wrath. Those who are religious deserve God's wrath. And those who are part of the human race deserve God's wrath. Now, as we talk about this, I know there's a sense of, like, God is a loving God. And that's the message at River Ridge, loud and clear. God is a loving God. And you kind of 
question is like, how, how do we reconcile that God is a loving God, but God also hands out wrath? And we go, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me. But as you think about it in terms of a parent, if you love your child, are there going to be times when you hand out punishment? Are there going to be times when you hand out consequences for actions? Of course there are. You know, if your child steals a toy and pushes another kid over, you're going to have the wrath of you as a parent on that child, right? Or if somebody does that to your child. If your child takes a stick and sticks it in the dog's eye over and over, there's going to be consequences for that. The consequences do not make you non-loving. As a matter of fact, if we're to talk about love, love requires that we have a sense of right and wrong. It would not be loving to just go, ah, oh well, just keep poking the dog, do whatever you want. Oh, it's okay, just pull your sister's hair as much as you want. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't change the love when there's discipline or when there's consequences. To have a God who loves, by necessity, is a God who also has consequences for those that he loves. I want to read one final verse to you. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're going to finish the rest of that verse next week. But I want to leave you in this place. That it's a tough message. And you may feel like somebody walking through the mountain layer, all that matters is you're going to hell, that you're in a category of somebody deserving of wrath. But that was a tough message that Dr. Rob delivered to Riley and to our family those years ago. But it was a message that we needed to know and to understand. And next week we're going to talk about the answer. We're going to talk a lot about the answer. And you probably figure out it has something to do with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that next week. But for this morning, I just wanted to leave us in this place that we would remember that all of us in this room, everybody watching online, that we are deserving of God's wrath.